Dr. Ersin Hussein is currently a senior lecturer of classics at Swansea University in Wales, whose work focuses on Roman history, local identity formation in the Roman provinces, and receptions of Cyprus and the Cypriot identity from antiquity to the present. She has recently published her first monograph with Oxford University Press called Revaluing Roman Cyprus, Local Identity on an Island in Antiquity. And she's here with us today to discuss Cyprus during the Roman period. Ursin, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andreas. Thank you for inviting me to take part in today's um, session. Oh, you're very welcome. So I just want to start off with your book um, and the title that you chose. Um, it, it's it's clear that you actually put that you put a lot of thought into the title of your book, Revaluing Cyprus. So what is it that you actually set out to do? Well, the, I, I obviously wanted to make it really clear what the premise of the book was and what it really is, is, is it's, a, it's a reconsideration of Roman Cyprus as a landscape, really using Terence Bruce Mitford's study, Roman Cyprus, which is an article over 100 pages long that was published posthumously in 1980, and to use that as a springboard, really, to, to really champion Cyprus as a really valuable and significant case study for the culture and society of provincial life in Roman territories. And I think really what happened with Terence Bruce Mitford's work, Roman Cyprus, is it became this this really important standard for the study of Cypriot history. But it really did need to be revisited and updated. And and what I found was that the article itself is wonderful in addressing concisely so many different themes and topics that tell us about the political situation of the island at the time. So during the you know very early Mediterranean history, from the hangover of the Ptolemaic period and then rolling into when the Romans come in, take over, assume Cyprus as part of their ter- territories and then what happens from there. But what it did, like many other studies of its time, is that it really assessed the culture and society of the island. Standing from Rome and from those other important hubs central to, um, to to Roman history. So you get a real minimization of the impact of the culture and society of the island at that at that time. What I wanted to do was to reevaluate the different aspects of, of the island's history and society, but standing from the viewpoint where I'm in Cyprus and looking outwards, so you can get a greater sense of the nuances and think much more deeply about those connections that the island maintained mm. um, once it became part of the Roman territories. And I think that, I hope at least that that really comes through in the book, particularly when we're talking about that really big topic, identity and identity formation. Right. So as a historian, Cyprus surprisingly has uh, a lack of written sources for this period, and that's got to be frustrating. So how, how do we fill in those gaps? How have you filled in those gaps? Oh, absolutely, Andreas. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. What what really happens during the Roman period is we get we get written sources that emerge that include really impressionistic snapshots at best of Cypriot culture and society during that time. 
And what we really have are outsider perceptions of what's important or what they deem as important concerning the island and its, its, its history. Less so its people. Even if written sources were in abundance, generally, I think it's always important to remember that they must be approached with caution because authors would have had their own motives and the way that they create and maintain stories about landscapes and peoples in the distant past will always be written to suit their cultural outlooks and, and aims. So there's, there's even, even if we had a wealth of sources, we, we'd have to be really critical of what it is they're saying. And I hope we, we cover this a little bit more when we, we get, we, we sort of move on with our conversation. But with regards um, filling in the gaps and, and getting a sense of, of what maybe daily life was like or what it was like for communities in Cyprus, we really have to synthesize a range of materials. So that inc includes epigraphic data. So that means those large monuments, sort of inscriptions um, attached to buildings, pedestals, uh, statue bases, to much smaller finds as well. Coins, art, architecture, and the landscape itself, and other types of, of material culture. And these need to all obviously uh, come from different contexts, so from domestic, public, funerary, and so on. But there are always challenges with interpreting these as well. And there's so much to contend with when you're um, engaging with material culture. They, this must go hand in hand with the, with the study of, of the few written accounts that do survive. Mm -hmm. the, other, the other big challenge, of course, is recovering marginalised voices in the ancient world. And this is, this is a given for, for any aspect of ancient um, society and in particular with Cyprus what I did find was that the experiences of women children and slaves are really minimized in the evidence we really we know very very little about those the thing that we are fortunate with with ancient Cyprus particularly its Roman period is that there's a rich history of of you know archaeological excavation um, and collaboration across the island so we we get a really nice sense of settlement archaeology and, and site history so we you know through systematic excavation so we get a nice sense of different turns that settlements take over time um, so sites like Neopaphos, Palaipaphos, mm -hmm. Kurion, Amathus, Kition and Salamis really yield rich rich evidence rich data relating to the culture and society of the island under Roman rule, as well as its other periods, right? Because um, most of these sites, uh, when we when we visit them, what we what we see, what we interact with, generally speaking, are dated to the Roman period. Yes, yes, okay. we have um, what what we see is a is a uh, in, in some sites in particular, really really intense moments of restructuring and rebuilding um, there's lots of reasons for this one of course is that cyprus is an earthquake hotspot um, so we and it yeah. still is so we so we have these moments where that restoration really is, is quite important but it's also an opportunity for you know in in, in commas the great good of society so there's wealthy elites to 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 show off and mm -hmm. to you know show that they're great benefactors of their own you know, um, 
cities where they hail from and that their family families are are important and that they can pull rank and mm-hmm. outshine one another and it's also the places where you know um governors or like high ranking roman officials and the emperor himself can have monuments set up to show that relationship between the center and periphery and mm-hmm. and and ma- maintain a particular dynamic between you know the capital and 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 the province itself now you actually mentioned that islands are often imagined as representing isolation, exile, danger. Yeah. And in other in other ways they're they're, they're imagined as romantic backwaters. Um, mm-hmm. where does Cyprus fit in this imperial imagination and how often does the the pendulum swing? The pendulum swings back and forth a lot, I can tell you. Um there's quite a lot to say really on this on this point. Um because, you know, it is true to say that islands are uh, paradoxical landscapes you know they really they really set um they really are set apart from from other types of landscape for that reason you know they they are insular they are isolated but they're highly connected at the same time and we we see this this um this flux playing out in lots of different ways so we certainly get that sense of it being a, a contradictory landscape and it's imagined so in 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 the Roman imperial imagination. So certainly, when we think about those Roman works that present us with accounts of the island, and I've mentioned that they're impressionistic snapshots, they're incredibly derivative, and they they tend to crystallise what I sort of see as a transmission of ideas about the island that emerge really from at least in written sources from the eighth century BC onwards, and we really get this compressed impression of key symbols and ideas that have been generated and and disseminated as important and significant to its identity, not just by outsiders, but by insiders along the way. So by Cypriots in, in much earlier periods, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the key the key markers that we see prop, propping up in these um in these accounts really are on the island's unusualness, the weirdness of its cults. Uh, particularly the worship of Aphrodite, of which there is a lot to say. It's it's very exciting to talk about her worship on the island. Um, and of course, it's abundant resources. You know, it's synonymous with copper. So it's excellent reserves absolutely were exploited by all and sundry. And it's abundant forests and other other types of resources that, that make it really profitable and wealthy and beneficial to, to control, essentially. Yeah. My last question for this um for your approach to to uh, Cyprus is and and specifically dealing with your book, um, you mentioned in the intro that you are using uh, Benedict Benedict Anderson's work as a springboard, um, who was famous for his work on identity and imagined communities. And while he focuses on nationalism, you write that, and I quote: "Many of his observations and qualifiers are useful for this study." Um, so. How do we understand Cypriot identity through those lenses that you've that you've chosen? Yes, I, I have to admit my um, the way in which I present my engagement with Benedict Anderson's work, Imagine Communities, in in the, in the introduction is is lighter than I would like it to be. But I think it's an incredibly useful point of departure when thinking about identity formation and you know communities and how that how community looks in the distant past and of course up to the present day as well particularly when thinking about cultural markers that articulate identity formation 
and represent those ancient communities. And what really struck me was his his discussion about the reality that many people can genuinely feel connected to one another or to a cause um, or to a landscape um, or build a sense of community even though they might never meet each other or even know of each other's existence. And there's something that brings those people together emotionally or physically somehow. And it might be something like seeing a flag or seeing a symbol that represents or is universal across you know, their landscape or their community or doing something like singing a national anthem. I think those are some of the examples he, he yeah. draws upon. So I started, you know, I started thinking, using this as a way to frame or think about how we might interpret those symbols that prop up quite regularly in, in different corners of, of Cypriot culture and society, to think about how people might feel connected, or even feel a sense of differentiation or, or, or distance or dissonance because of course those things I've mentioned you know I'm using as an example singing a national anthem or, or looking at a flag that can stir up negative emotions as, as, as well yeah. of course as we all know so when I was when I was thinking collectively about those those key symbols so for me we've got Aphrodite and her associated, um, you know, mythological figures that prop up in her, you know, stories about her and the Cypriot landscape, the religious landscape as well as it's imagined and constructed by insiders, so Cypriots through the use of symbols, and then how that's interpreted by outsiders, so people who might have never stepped foot on the island, but they're writing about it and those sources are, are, are you know, have survived and, and tell us about those snapshots. And what I, what I found or what I, how I interpreted this was that we see these moments where there's, there's, we see those big markers bringing people together or they would have been familiar symbols, but we also see nuances as well. So we see local interpretations of what, these are and what it means to a community so for me it helped me sort of understand and framework and interpret how identity in the ancient world as much as it is in the modern world is fluid mm -hmm. it's situational yeah. it's practical you know you you lean into whatever and you utilize whatever identity or symbol or marker that is relevant to the context in which you're operating in at that given time and it's, a, of course, it's evolving. Nothing is ever static and still. You know, right. You constantly see movement. Yeah, I've had, this, I've had this conversation around identity countless times, and it never ceases to amaze me how often when we speak about identity, we think of it as something that's encoded in your DNA, <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. and it's yes. not, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it's not in your blood. It's not something that you can... Um, test for as much as those DNA kits want to oh. sell you on, right? Yes. Um, um, okay, so let's let's jump into the, uh, put the putting this into political context, uh, historical context. Yeah. In the Ptolemaic era, there, there are significant changes um, in Cypriot history. There's a period of Hellenization. So we have the abolition mm -hmm. of the quote-unquote city kingdoms, standardization yes. of Koine Greek. And uh, in, in 58 BCE, we have Rome's annexation of Cyprus. Yes. Uh, I want to start off by uh, trying to wrap my head around what were what was the Roman motivation to annex Cyprus from, from Egypt? 
<laughs> there is um oh this is this is such an exciting period of Mediterranean history to observe for me anyway um, and with regards to the motivation there is we really need to focus on the key movers and shakers at, at Rome at the time and I'm particularly talking about um, Clodius uh, Polka who was tribune of the plebs in 58 BC now, this might be a bit of a scattergun result, but he's at the centre of all of um, all, all of this. And he um, th- th- there's, there's a few sort of strands of this story um, with regards what he does to facilitate the and push forward with the annexation of the island. What What's really significant about this moment in Roman history in particular is that the empire of not the empire it's its territories rather it's not an empire yet um, its territories are expanding and we're we're seeing generally in the um, eastern mediterranean that systematically it's it's assimilating landscapes under its you know into its its control and on the one hand we have people who sort of think okay well it's, it's inevitable cyprus is next but it's a, you know, it's an island that is attached to the Ptolemies, you know, who are ruling predominantly from Alexandria. But they themselves are managing a failing thalassocracy. So they're, they're, they're losing their grip on power. And at key moments in that sweep of the first century BC, where we see Rome expanding its territories in different parts of the Eastern Mediterranean, we see the Ptolemies really bargaining and negotiating to hang on to their status. And they're doing this through various means. And one thing, of course, that, that happens is that they're they're paying lots of money. Um, some of their leaders are paying lots of money to, to establish and confirm their status and that relationship with Rome. Then we fast forward to 58 BC. Polka is tribune of the plebs. And he pushes forward with this law known as the Lex Clodia. And one of the things that is stipulated in this is that the property of Ptolemy of Cyprus, so this is the, the, the brother of one of, of the leading Ptolemies in, um, in Alexandria, that he is ruling um, in Cyprus. And, and the law stipulates that, you know, his property should be confiscated from him and assumed by Rome, essentially. And there's another little offshoot to this story that, you know, uh, pr- prior to this, Clodius, you know, was, was kidnapped by, by pirates and a ransom was, was announced. And he, Ptolemy of Cyprus sent such a pitiful sum of money for him to be released that it was a humiliation. So, some interpret it as some sort of personal vendetta. Some see the wider the, the wider picture of, of, of Egypt, you know, and its rulers are sem- simply just losing their grip on power. And it's inevitable that Cyprus was was next to fall under Rome's control, given what's happening elsewhere. But really, what we should really see this as is the 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 you know as, as being driven by. The, the, the greed and the demands and the needs of those key players of Roman politics back in Rome. And of course, we see all of this or most of it through the lens of Cicero, who is, you know, Polka's great adversary and is 
he will sort of counter anything that Polka does or says. Yes, um, Mr. O, he's he's really. I'm from what I gather. I'm from what I've read. He's he's really really critical uh, of oh, him and, absolutely. and his interactions with not just Ptolemy, but I think he criticizes even some. Um, uh, ex- I think he calls it exploitation of the Salaminians. Um, yes, absolutely. Some really dark stuff. Uh, maybe you can touch upon it. Even locking some Salaminians in a local Senate house. Yes. Starving five of them to death. Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> yep. But again, you're absolutely right to to point that out. And it's. I think we do have to look at what it is that these men back in Rome wanted to portray of themselves and wanted to achieve, and what their wider motives were. And and you know, Cyprus it finds itself at the centre of all of this. Uh, these 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 internal quarrels. The other issue, of course, is that um, you know, following years and years and years of, of warfare and expansion, there's there's the treasury at Rome is absolutely dwindling, and with the confiscation of property comes great booty, doesn't it? So it's 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 this it's this key turning point in Roman in Roman politics and how they manage, you know, and, and, and negotiate relationships with different landscapes. And it's this, it's this moment where they don't just go down and, and, and kick the door down to start a war. There's, there's a bit of hanging back first, you know, Cato the Younger is sent out there um, and he hangs back in Rhodes first of all. And his job of confiscating the property is made all the more easier because Ptolemy of Cyprus commits suicide. He's offered the high priesthood of Aphrodite of Paphos. And he he sort of makes that decision to take control of the situation. And that's how he he deems to do that. And what what happens is then Cicero, um, sorry, not Cicero, Cato the Younger is then able to hot tail it from Rhodes and go to Cyprus. And then he spends two years essentially overseeing the sale of property and land and amassing great wealth. And he does return to Rome in 56 BC with unimaginable wealth from the island. Some of it's lost on the way, conveniently, um, but there's there's still an incredible amount of wealth that is amassed from the island. Jump ahead to 47, 48 BCE. Yes. Uh, Julius Caesar uh, actually returns Cyprus to Cleopatra, and I've actually encountered this little factoid as a, as um, as being a romanticized event, <laughs> like yes. that, that he gifted it to Cleopatra to you know uh, about Cyprus's beauty to match her own and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But what was the reason, really? Why why was this gifted back to Cleopatra? In truth, I don't know. <laughs> the sources are really not that that clear on that they're they're pretty vague on it to be honest yeah um i think what we can at least take from that um we can take other things from from that specific interaction one it gives us a sense of really the dire situation for the ptolemies you know cleopatra seven is the the last ptolemy standing and of course with her death marks the end of the 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 ptolemies themselves as a dynasty and really her interactions with, you know, with Rome in the wake of, you know, those of, of her ancestors, you know, immediately give us that sense of how dire the situation was, as I've said, for the Alexandrians. 
trying to maintain their sense of, of, of power and importance, you know, as, as they're failing and as, as a unit of power and sway um, in that region at the time. And she's, she, you know, she's, she's essentially bargaining with Rome and, and standing standing her ground as much as she can and and it's interesting you know you you think about you, you you've raised that interesting point about the, romanticizing this this interaction we cer- we certainly get that connectivity between this 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 image of of Cleopatra 7 as as Afro, you know the, the, you know being matched by the beauty of Aphrodite and that link with the island after the, the birth of Caesarian, so the, the child that she has with Julius Caesar, a coin is, you know, a series is minted and we see them represented on the coin itself as, as Aphrodite and as Eros or Cupid. So, so, so we sort of get that, you know, that sense of, of that playing on those symbols there and showing the connectivity between you know her as a ruler and a leader, and then she's been connected with this with the chief deity of of the island itself. And then we we get this later symbolic uh, handing back or, or 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 handing of of Cyprus and other territories in the Ptolemaic orbit at the time. You know when when she is is with Mark Antony um, and has children with him as well. So so. It's showing us really how unstable that region is at the at the time, and what the what the key figures are doing to try and hang on to power and carve their ground out and, and hang on to it. So, in in twenty two BCE, the island is officially returned to senatorial rule, um, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. But what I want to know is, well, two questions, and I think they're both <clears throat> sort of big. So I apologize that they're not a little bit more focused. Um, the first one is. The Roman period seems to begin with the draining of the Cypriot treasury and selling off land, just like you just like you mentioned uh, a moment ago. But ironically, this is what I was mentioning earlier. It does seem to usher in a period of prosperity, and you know, drastically transforming the cityscape. So, I suppose my first question is: How long does it take for for prosperity to sort of take hold in Cyprus? And, and in what way do we see this growth of prosperity that eventually comes through the Roman period? In terms of how long um, we see prosperity, I, it's really hard to, I don't like to give this impression ever when it comes to history that as, as we move on through different periods of time, there's sort of an evolution and an upward tick of things because things are very, you know, it's it's very different in terms of how settlements grow and 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 how the people or those ruling it benefit from it and and make gains make gains from it or 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 see their culture and society move in different directions. So I really hope that my response doesn't give any sense of, you know, straightforward linear progression. Um, I mean I think that the, the thing about um with the island being being drained of its resources, the key through the sale of its of of key lands and properties, I think the key thing to note is that the sense I get from the written texts are that these are exclusively the property of, of Ptolemy. So those individuals or communities or groups that have emerged as 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 prominent um, in society continue to to grow essentially the the challenge is that we don't we don't necessarily have specifics about 
who these people were and when they were operating and what they were doing because of the nature and focus of epigraphic evidence, which is is really the type of evidence that gives us a sense of, you know, those specifics to do with family groups and, you know, different individuals. So certainly from the generally from the inscriptions that I've seen and, and studied from the Ptolemaic period, they've certainly centered more on the Ptolemies themselves and, and people close to their their court who tended to be outsiders, not local Cypriots during during their reign. But we certainly have evidence of families and family groups way back before the the Roman period, sort of holding, you know, prominent positions in society that were important to their local context and I, I think this really relates to the religious landscapes the different types of priesthoods that type of thing so we, we must imagine that they were they were a big deal locally in very small local settings at the time um, but when we think about that prosperity and what happens after Roman rule um, sort of is established we certainly see I think this the evidence that we see of families being celebrated, celebrating themselves, um, and certainly um, being honoured by by locals who who might not have citizenship or hold high rank at all. Um, I think that tends to speak to the general trend that we see in the Roman world of inscriptions being that you know really important source for people to record their actions and deeds and be re- remembered for time afterwards. So there's this, there's a famous study of inscriptions in the Roman world. Um, and it talked by Ramsey McMullen, and it talks about the, 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 the trends that we see in the, the, the use of inscriptions as an important communicative and memorial tool, essentially. So that, you know, we, we're seeing inscriptions as really important in the Roman period. And it, that, you know, we really get a sense of these, these, you know, family dynamics, um, in the key hubs, um, key settlements of the island at the time, and what they're up to, and 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 you know the, the important roles that they played in their local communities. Yeah, I guess I guess the reason why I asked that question was because you, when you do visit Cyprus, you do see the bulk of the, the bulk of the, uh, the remains that you see do date to the Roman period, and you and I feel that you you can sort of qualify quote-unquote prosperity in, yeah. in terms of mosaics and public yeah. buildings and and uh, so on and so forth, which is why I suppose I thought of it in that way, uh, that this is a period where we see public works and aqueducts. Yes. And, and it just strikes me as like, oh, is this, is this a time where uh, there's a lot of money being brought into Cyprus and a lot of in- investment and uh, public works that must be benefiting not just the the rich, but also the the poor um, classes that we don't get to really see in the historical record. If that makes any sense, uh, yes. what I said. No, you're absolutely right to to flag that. And I, if I may, just to give a, 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 a one example. I mean, one thing that's really interesting is that we don't actually know what these people are doing <laughs> to get their wealth. <laughs> but there's one there's one figure that really stands out and I'd like to mention him um he's from Salamis there are i think over 17 or around 17 or a little over 17 inscriptions you know that name this individual and his his name is Servius Sulpicius Pancles Veranianus 
And he is an incredible benefactor for Salamis. And there's actually one inscription set up by um, someone who identifies as an ancestral friend. And this person talks about all the, the public works that this individual has set up for the community and you know he he builds the amphitheater and the theater and he sets up statues representing the emperors and they're made of precious metals and he gives a handout um to the community and i don't have you know there's no firm evidence for this but there's a really interesting idea uh, presented in um david potter's study of roman cyprus and he says well someone like pancles you know he must have been benefiting from um, ancient institutions and making money from things like slavery. Surely, you know, these are, these are the types of things that perhaps people were um, gaining wealth from. Um, and of course, there, there are other things. Um, you know, if you think about Cyprus's situation as an island, you know, it's, it's a connecting node really in the Eastern Mediterranean, really important in terms of its location between east and west and of course situated with between asia minor and of course egypt to, to its south so people would have of course been taking advantage of of the trade of trade and trade routes so there's there's lots of there's lots of things that are, are not explicit but we could certainly inch towards some answers by you know it doesn't do any harm to pose questions mm -hmm. even though we don't have the firm evidence this is a this is the second question i had uh, unfortunately, I think it's one of those <laughs> one of those really big ones again. Um, what sort of changes do we see between the Ptolemaic and the and the Roman rule? Um, and they could be cultural changes, economic changes. If we could maybe get a sense of what sort of changes occurred between these two periods, that maybe we can qualify. There's there's things that change, and there's things that don't change at all. <laughs> so I think. I think this, I mean, this is a great question because it, it, it really speaks to the overall message of, of my work that focuses on, on this, this period of the island's history. There's a lot that changes, and I certainly see it as a veneer as opposed to a deep-rooted change. And when I say there's a lot that changes, I'm, I'm thinking of things like, of course, we get the hallmarkers of um, sort of, you know, Roman culture and society that show that, you know, the community leaned into being part of the Roman Empire and did their best really to, to negotiate a relationship where, you know, with their rulers, so through their administrators, and then to try and reach, you know, centrally, to, to really benefit from being part of this system. And there's a few things that give us that sense. And, and one is, of course, the way in which the towns are furnished. So physically, we sort of see those outward signs. So through inscriptions, monuments that are set up to the emperor, be it whether he's conceived of as, as divine um, or mortal. So what's really wonderful is we, we, we get a very positive response outwardly. So it's not just in, you know, monuments that we see set up, but also when we look at those individuals that I've mentioned or alluded to earlier, um, you know, those prominent families, and we get a real mix of people, whether they hold citizenship or not, sort of really celebrating the emperor with great zeal. 
and zest you know you know we've got these people setting up all kinds of of things and, and making sure that the emperor's honored at festivals and um that there are statues set up to him um so we see that happening and we see that enthusiasm but we always have to think what is the motivation here and this is where i sort of see it why i sort of see it as a veneer and i hope you don't mind but i'm going to mention the um the really one of the most important documents to come from the island and that is the oath of allegiance to tiberius this just in brief is a monument that whereby the island or the community is is swearing an oath of allegiance to the emperor and of course flagging up that they're you know that they're going to hold the same um enemies as as he does and and they're going to um sort of acknowledge um you know him as a as a divine being and swear loyalty to him but the other thing is whilst they're doing this the cypriots say hang on you know we we are the home we are the land of your divine ancestress aphrodite and they flag this up in the inscription so that's one thing that's really important about this document and the other thing that is important is that heading the document is a list of really local and obscure gods and goddesses and some of them we don't actually know from any other documents so we have you know apollo hylates who is a very local god the chief chief god of, um, of of Kurion. We have another Apollo with an uncertain epithet that follows. So an Aphrodite Acrya, so from the, the, the tip of Cyprus, the, the saucepan handle, if it, if it were. So the Cypriots, it's a really nice document to, to respond to your question, because on the one hand, they, they do a lot on the surface to say, yep, you know, we're embracing, we're embracing being part of the Roman Empire. But they are maintaining their local identity, and they're not compromising it in any way. And those are the deep-rooted ties that we see lasting, you know, outlasting Roman rule. And that they're, you know, they they run deep. So we see when we look closer at the evidence, we see that celebration and sense of co- connectivity with with its neighbouring landscapes in that eastern Mediterranean. Uh, region and of course touching the the central Mediterranean as well. So I'm thinking about the particular connection it has with landscapes like like Greece, mainland Greece. Um, so particularly Athens and Crete, Tegea. So for me, those outlast and they trump what we see happening with with the Romans coming in. So I hope that answers your question. There's plenty more to to flag up. Okay, so we have um, Cato, Titus, Galen possibly Trajan, Hadrian, a yes. lot, lot, of, lot of visitors to Cyprus. Did Romans stay in Cyprus at all? Were there any, did they settle uh, in any way? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really great question. I mean, I, I remain skeptical about Trajan and Hadrian setting uh, foot on the island. Certainly we have evidence of, of, of the other people and more that you mentioned. Another high profile visitor um, is Amasia, or Marcia, the um, she is a, a close relative um, of the Emperor Augustus, and her husband Paulus Fabius Maximus was um, a proconsul locally, so not of Cyprus, but he was he was proconsul elsewhere. And I, you know, we've got an we've got an inscription set up at the sanctuary of Aphrodite Paphia at Palaipaphos, noting her 
presence somehow. But even then, you know, I think I think I sort of make a note that, well, she might have visited on a tour to the island, you know, tour of the region. But again, is this is this a way in which the Cypriots set up a monument to give that impression that someone important visited? No question mark. Um, and that's certainly the discussion around the, the the potential visit of Trajan or Hadrian. Um, so again, you know, thinking thinking about the type of impressions that these inscriptions give, you know, when they're set up by by local communities, what what's going on here? In terms of whether the Romans stayed and settled, there's no there's no firm evidence of this. Um, unfortunately, there's no there's certainly no colonies um, set up on the island, but you get a you certainly get a sense of the administration of the island being pretty unproblematic and pretty efficient. Apart from the the one incident, incident oh, that yes. we have, the Jewish revolt. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> supposedly, uh, the numbers are incredible. 200,000 Cypriots were, were killed in this revolt, which I really doubt that number. I think most uh, people yeah. do. <laughs> it's just dramatic um, devices, isn't it, in literary text, that shock factor. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, you know, the 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 figure that you're mentioning comes from um, Cassius Dio, who's writing about that um, empire-wide Jewish revolt that took place um, in the early part of the second century AD. So between AD one one five and one one seven, and again, you know, that figure of um, over two hundred. He says two hundred and forty thousand um, Greeks were killed by the Jewish community um, during an uprising that took place in AD one one seven. This then prompted Trajan um, to dispatch a legion to quash the result, uh, revolt, and restore peace. But again, yeah, this is this is one of those moments when we have to look at the wider picture to think about what is exactly going on here. Um, so you've got these sensationalist figures and accounts, and it goes on to say that, that the Jewish people who lived there, they were cannibals. Um, so it's really, really, you know, awful depictions um, of a community that just speaks to the wider marginalization of them, not just in this source, but in, in, in other sources. Um, so I can you know, give us other examples. There's Pliny the Elder who writes about magic and sorcery that takes place, um, that originates with Jews and connects that with some aspects of Cyprus. And of course, the Acts of the Apostles, Book 13, which tells us of Christian and Jewish encounters on the island. Um, we have um, a Jewish sorcerer there being presented in a particularly negative negative light and this, this speaks to a wider wider narrative but yeah this is this is the one example where we have things going not very well on Cyprus that sort of prompts a, a dramatic response from from Rome so how would have Cypriots identified themselves at the time are they still primarily seeing themselves through the polis I think so. Yes, I mean, I I say yes because when when I looked at what Cypriots are doing outside of the island, we don't have many inscriptions, but we certainly have examples of of Cypriots in in key hubs um, moving around. Um, we see them at Athens. We see them at Delphi, participating in games. Uh, we get lots of poets, athletes. So they're really, you know, particularly under 
Roman rule, they're really participating in those different processes um, and cultural events of the wider empire. We see them in Rome as, as, as well, quite a few examples from there. But the key thing is that when, when they're being commemorated in their inscriptions, more often than not, they name their polis. There's very few examples where they say from or of Cyprus. It's it's really the polis that comes through. So I think that's the identity that is is, you know, that's the community that they see themselves being part of. And of course, you know, as much as we, we're talking about Cyprus as a connected landscape, the the cities themselves enjoyed, you know, they enjoyed that sense of competition amongst one another. And they had their own deep-rooted ties and connections with different landscapes that we, we sort of get that as a, as a hangover from different periods of the island's history going way back to their supposed foundations and how those are imagined and reimagined over time. And then just to circle back your question about what changes and what stays the same um, between Ptolemaic rule and, and Roman rule, you know, just thinking of some of those markers of Ptolemaic culture and society and, and its impact on Cyprus. We we still see that continuing, certainly in the Roman period. I mean, there were at one point, you know, multiple calendars allegedly being utilized on the island. We've got Neopaphos that, you know, sets up and establishes a, a new calendar in around 15 BC that's really geared up towards celebrating Rome and incorporating Roman names and, and ideas and gods and goddesses, you know, in its landscape. But got fragments of um, or snapshots of calendars being used in other locations like Salamis and their Ptolemaic. We've got pe- peculiarities of cults that have quite close contact with these different landscapes and they those traits and symbols and markers of of identity they continue in the roman period so we get a real mixed bag certainly to say the least uh, you know i was really surprised when i was reading your book to learn about uh trading communities from italy <laughs> yes. at the time and they're referred to as now in English, looking at this word, I would say negotiator, but I don't know that that's exactly how it would have been pronounced. So you can clarify a little bit. Um, but what was that group exactly? And uh, what were their function in, in Cyprus? Yeah, they're, um, oh, this is the evidence for them is thin, I have to admit. <laughs> and it's always risky putting that kind of data in, in into print. But they were certainly there in Cyprus. So negotiators or negotiatores, there's there's no singular definition of really what what they did or who they were when we find evidence relating to them. But they were predominantly involved in the work of publicani. So that's public contractors. It's not necessarily nice work to be doing (laughs) because and when I say not nice work, you'll see what I mean um, by this description, because they were essentially responsible for collecting taxes and dues, amongst other things. So, as you can imagine, this is this is sort of um, quite intense, involving quite intense dynamics in communities. And often when we turn to the evidence for for them in different hubs of um, the Mediterranean, we find that they 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 did assimilate and, and ingratiate themselves in some communities, but there were also lots of tensions as well. So as I said, the evidence for them in Cyprus is admittedly quite scarce. We have certainly two inscriptions that name them. One really full inscription from 
the sanctuary of Aphrodite at Palaipaphos, which is wonderful, very early in date when it comes to those interactions between Rome and Cyprus. So potentially in the second um, century BC, I think, but there are some ideas that it's, it's dated a little bit later than that. And there's a very fragmentary inscription from Salamis. And then there's another inscription from Neopaphos. And what we have is we, we don't have the wealth of evidence that we have in other locations such as Delos. So we don't have specific names. We don't really get a sense of really what they're up to. And we don't really know what, you know, what they're doing there or what their community looked like. What we what we can glean from the monuments that do stand is that we get a real sense of how they're marking their identities in these different contexts in different different ways. So just to turn to the, the two firm examples, for, for, for instance, we've got the one from the sanctuary of Aphrodite Palaipaphos, so Aphrodite Paphia at Palaipaphos, and this is a bilingual inscription. So there's a sense, I imagine, I guess, of honouring local traditions and the goddess. So it's, you know, we've got the text in, in Greek, but we've also got it in Latin as well. And then we've got the text in Latin in Salamis. So are they using language as a vehicle to really make a bold statement that they're on the one hand assimilating and following customs or following traditions in one context and in another that, that that's not a concern they're they're making it clear that they are roman <laughs> you know they're from you know they're, and they're using language as a as a signifier to do so that with that second inscription from salamis comes fragments of of roman terminology and roman names as well so it's it's very different in tone to the other inscription but as i say that you know it's really hard to know specifically what they're what they're doing there yeah which is which is you know goes back to our if we only had some written sources to kind of yeah. you know, shore yes. up the evidence that we have already it, to what degree can we say there was bilingualism in cyprus oh absolutely i mean the interesting thing with languages and what what happens in cyprus really isn't remarkable in any in any way whatsoever generally speaking when it comes to landscapes that became under roman you know came under roman control that were in the eastern part of the mediterranean they the the daily language was greek they tended to continue inscribing in greek and we 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 see that happening more often than not but then official documents that come from the center were in latin or they were bilingual. So we have a lovely series of milestones from from the Roman period, and they're, they're they're bilingual. So that's that's really wonderful to see to see that and get a sense of of those boundary markers setting out the, the Cypriot landscape with both languages side by side. There's also an idea in um, some contexts that Phoenician was still in use at a domestic level, at least into the first century BC. That's that's an idea that comes from Terence Bruce Mitford's um, study, Roman Cyprus. We certainly see Phoenician being utilised in inscriptions in the classical period and then down in the, the Hellenistic period. And then interestingly, we do have instances in Kition, 
which is you know the the land the particular city the landscape in Cyprus that particularly is connected with with Phoenician culture and society we certainly see inscriptions being reused and reinscribed with Phoenician on them and I, I I don't necessarily think that's a mistake there might be something quite deliberate going on there but my, I, I don't read Phoenician I, I I don't translate the language so that's something I'd have to turn to to colleagues and peers to who work on this to get a better sense of, of what might be going on there. Speaking of uh, Mitford, <clears throat> he had suggested that Cypriots eagerly pursued citizenship, but mm-hmm. became disenchanted when they didn't achieve it and yes. began to look inwards. What's your take on that? Yeah, this this argument is this idea is really based on an empire wide phenomenon that occurs in AD two one two. We have the edict of Caracalla, so the Constitutio Antoniniana. And this, you know, is a is a really important legal document. And there are, of course, lots of controversies and different interpretations about how people view this. Um, but the key takeaway point is that this granted citizenship to all freeborn people in the provinces. And based on that, Mitford noted that the, the lack of individuals appearing in inscriptions using key imperial nomenclature, um, so the, um, the the name Aureli, meant that they just weren't bothered anymore <laughs> with, you know, pursuing citizenship. One, because those who are freeborn had been granted it automatically, but then we get this disenchantment with it. So that's one thing. The other thing is is also because the way in which citizenship is granted in Cyprus is that it's just really sporadic (laughs) and um, there's no rhyme or reason because we get lots of families where they're clearly or individuals who are clearly doing things that are getting them noticed and they're really prominent. They might not necessarily be granted citizenship straight away or at all compared to some who are. So so I I think that's where his conclusions from that come from. But the thing is, um, there's, there's several things to, to remark upon here. So my my take is that we can't really argue from silence. Just because we can't see something doesn't necessarily mean that we can draw a conclusion that people were disenchanted or right. or, 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 or no longer proud of, of seeking citizenship or wanting it. So that's one thing that's really problematic. The other thing is our, our, you know, the archaeological record from Cyprus is uneven. We haven't, we haven't brought this into any discussion yet, but it's, you know, the island is divided and there are incredible leaps and bounds that have been made on the southern side of the island in terms of the archaeology and the, the, the collaborations that have taken place. Um, and it's phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal to see how this has 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 grown um, over many, many decades. But that is not the, the same for the north of the island. So I'm always mindful that we have a very uneven archaeological record. And I'm always hopeful that things, you know, that there are things that haven't been uncovered. So I'm I'm very reluctant to draw firm conclusions that are based on 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 silences in the material record. So I, I sort of take a take I, I sort of thought maybe dial that conclusion back yeah. a little bit. 
Um, and we we certainly see after AD two one two, we you know we still see people being enthusiastic for their cities, you know, and and their you know particularly that evidence of 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 individuals operating outside the island. They're they're still keenly participating in in those um, cultural events of empire. So there's there's a lot more to take on board than just thinking about the specifics of of the nom- nomenclature that we see. So the, as you might know, I've, uh, I had an interview with Andrew Wilburn. Uh, mm-hmm. and we talked about the Cypriot curse tablets. Yes. Uh, you look at these tablets through the lens of social interaction. And there's actually even evidence of proconsuls being cursed by yes. locals. So what can we take from that? Is, does this suggest tension amongst the, the local populace and Roman governance? Or is this just like a little isolated event? I mean, how how do you interpret that? Well, it's oh, I'm so glad you brought this up because it's a it's a really great piece of evidence from from the island, and we have these documents that that really that they're legal in nature, and they they tell us you know how individuals wished for their enemies to be tongue-tied and confused when they're in court and so you have the names of individuals um sort of scribed in it's like a fill in the blanks um, exercise with a practitioner overseeing the creation of the the bulk of the text themselves um so we have this snapshot where a, a, a governor is cursed and this speaks to a couple of things really one is that i really felt it was important to make a big deal of, of this type of evidence because the epigraphic evidence, you know, our monumental inscriptions, they really dominate our viewpoint when we're ex- when we're exploring aspects of, of Roman culture and society in this in the Cypriot context. And that gives us the positive snapshots. You know, that really tells us of the of the 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 the, the wonderful things and the wonderful interactions that people are engaging with and those positive dynamics between prominent locals or groups or institutions and um, administrators. And the administrators are there representing the state, so representing the emperor himself. So, of course, that's going to be positive. Both sides want to gain something from this negotiation or this, these types of interactions. So there's something reciprocal here to bear in mind. With the curse tablets, we don't have that. This is, you know, in fact, an unofficial document. And we've got, you know, all kinds of ideas about how curses were made and the conditions in which they took place and were created and deposited. And the fact that we have a a governor or proconsul being cursed just, just tells us about other aspects of the administrators' responsibilities on the island. You know, they they, they were essentially there to do a whole host of things and one thing would be presiding over local legal concerns. So it doesn't, of course, we have no idea whether the individual or individuals placing these curses, whether they are guilty, innocent or whatever they've been accused of. Um, but it just gives us a it just gives us a little bit of a paradigm shift when we're thinking about those dynamics and interactions. So it's it's a nice little snapshot of of nuance when it comes to thinking about local communities and individuals interacting with um, officials from Rome. There's this really famous, well, I think anyone who, who knows the Bank of Cyprus, they'll know, yes. they'll recognize a very famous um, 
logo, I suppose, called Non uh, Kiprion. It, it's you know, it's quite a common image, but admittedly, I have no idea what it is. And uh, this this emerges in this period. Uh, I guess a loose translation would be Confederacy of Cypriots. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so what? What? Let's let's figure out what is the Ginon Kiprion for yes. us uh, on the outside. Yeah, this is a this is a really prominent and important local institution, and of of course we see we see these replicated in in different landscapes across the Mediterranean. So Cyprus is not unique in in having their own um, koinon or kinon. It's thought to have been founded under Ptolemaic rule, but really the evidence comes you know relating to their activities comes into its own under Roman rule and really shows the range of their responsibilities and actions during this time. So some of the things that we certainly see them doing, they set up monuments to prominent Romans outside the island. That's one key thing that they do. So in particular, governors, you know, ex-governors or ex-proconsuls. So again, it's all about maintaining that that dynamic, that relationship, thinking what they can what 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 they can get out of of this network to benefit local interests. We really see them rewarding locals for benefactions and for their sort of enthusiasm and zeal, you know, towards their own cities. So so we get we get certain individuals being rewarded. Under Claudius, um, they're given the responsibility of minting coins for the island. So that relates to the point you've just made, Andreas, about that symbol that, that, that's really well known to, to Cypriots today. Um, so we, we certainly see that as, as, as prominent a prominent hangover from the ancient world. Essentially, their, their role was to make sure that that they had a role of of, of negotiating peace, um, of, of 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 negotiating potentially awkward dynamics between cities, or or you know on behalf of cities and and other um, players that came into contact with 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 Cyprus, and essentially just to ensure that Cyprus as an island was best represented and rewarded accordingly on the regional and, of course, on the wider Mediterranean stage as well. So just some, some examples um, to drill down a little bit more. Again, this is you know, Cicero uh, blowing his own trumpet, really. He, he boasts that when he's governor of Cilicia in um, 51 BC, he, he boasts that, you know, unlike his predecessors, he, he refused a bribe of 200 talents and he talks about how the koinon or Kinon were instrumental in, in negotiating there. So we get this sense that when, during this unstable pe- period, when um, we have um, administrators coming into contact with Rome, so following on from the annexation in 58 BC, initially Cyprus was governed as part of Cilicia, so in southern Asia Minor. So the the, the Kinon, the Koinon, they essentially were there to... to First of all, get in there straight away and negotiate some sort of relationship with the Roman administrator that was that was taking control. And this was obviously done through a bribe of some sort. So that's that's one thing we see. We've mentioned the Oath of Allegiance before, and there's some idea that Coinon itself was involved in um, the the creation of that, or certainly the text in some way. The key thing about this particular local institution is that one of its most important functions was overseeing the cult of the ruler. So 
the worship of the emperor um, Mm -hmm. and maintaining that during the Roman period. Again, like the negotiatores, unlike other periods and other contexts rather, we don't have specifics about this group. We don't know exactly who gained membership, how this was managed in the Cypriot context. But we should certainly imagine that the most prominent and the highest ranking of elites of the cities themselves made part of this, you know, this 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 group, um, this institution. Yeah, you mentioned that they even sent an embassy to Rome yes. in 22 AD to secure the right of asylum by the island's oldest sanctuaries. Yes. Uh, inscriptions set up in, in uh, Olympia and Capua. Yeah. Uh, so definitely you can, I guess the, the evidence is small, but it's there. And yeah. uh, it's interesting about how far and wide that they made their mark felt. Yes, absolutely. And, I, you know, they're, they're doing everything that they can to make sure that Cyprus as an island gets the gets the best deal that it can really out of out of being part of this particular imperial system. I think I think that's that's um, that really speaks to some aspects of, of ancient um, Cyprus as a landscape generally. You know, it's we, we, we started this conversation by thinking about its resources and how it was exploited and thinking about the island paradox you know it's this this highly connected landscape but it's isolated as well and you know I I say in the book um, in many ways because of these things and how it was perceived it was fated to be con you know conquered and the Cypriots they're not passive I, I really don't see them as a passive community they use every tool they possibly can to to do what they can to negotiate and as I say make the best of the situation and and see what they can benefit out of it you get this sense of being you know really practical and savvy in the in the face of managing lots of of difficult political um, allegiances and dynamics you know it's really interesting that you brought up that that word passive In, in, in every interview I've conducted up to this point, it's always amazing how much agency actually exists in Cyprus. There's never yes. a period of time. Uh, unfortunately, though, it is por- it is portrayed that way in a lot of um, popular literature. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, I just had an interview recently with Luca Zavagno. He is a professor of uh, Byzantine studies. And and we, we talked about the, uh, the Arab uh, raids in Cyprus and the yes. establishment of a condominium. And it was just fascinating to talk to him, to learn about how much agency actually existed in Cyprus, how key uh, Cypriot delegations were in negotiating the terms. Uh, it's not like they were just, again, there's that word, they weren't passive in all this. They were actually quite active in advocating for themselves and getting the best for for Cyprus and Cypriots. So if there's a, if there's a common thread uh, in any of these talks it's that there's certainly lots of agency in cyprus i'd love to hear that i really love to hear that uh it's interesting um on a side note here that there's uh no independent independent temple that was set up Mm -hmm. to honor the emperors um is it fair to say that they were just simply kind of co-opted into existing cults yes (laughs) i mean i think 
I think this is this is um, this speaks to a few points that that we made um, earlier and touched upon. I mean, one thing you talked you asked me was, you know, what changes do we see? And, and I sort of said, well, yes, of course, we get you know this enthusiastic response to the emperor um, and his his worship in the island. But yeah, we we don't see an independent temple really being set up to him, and and I think that that gives us that sense that again, it's it's in many ways a veneer. You know, they're, they're, they're doing the right things at the right times in the right ways to, you know, show the enthusiasm and the leaning into, you know, Roman systems, Roman symbols. And of course, you know, that we see that at varying intensities, but the local and, you know, roots and connections that exist before continue. And they, they essentially take the, the, the prime role. So again, you know, when we think about particular landscapes um, in Cyprus, you know, you've got the cult of Aphrodite at Palaipaphos, so Aphrodite Paphia. Again, you know, we, we, we generally hear how unusual and unique and particular that particular setup is there and how ancient it is. And that's not compromised. Of course, we have monuments to the emperor and his wider household really being set up really, you know, straight off the bat you know with in in great volume and we see monuments to um members of the imperial household uh, including things like a dedication to Livia the wife of emperor Augustus and it's Livia as Aphrodite but it's an inscription it's not a temple it's not it 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 doesn't alter as far as we know the the shape of the sanctuary, you know, as I say, we don't know because there's the the ruins of the sanctuary give little away um, about certain aspects of how that particular space was inhabited and visited by by people. Again, you've got the um, worship of Apollo Hylates at Curion. This is this is the chief deity there, and we get the adoption of a of a the imperial cult there, but. So we have dedications to Apollo Hylates and Apollo Caesar together. But Apollo Caesar always comes second to Apollo Hylates, you know, and it so we 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 see it we see it being worship of the emperor being assumed, but it's it doesn't dramatically alter what's happening in these locations. The only place that it really changes is at Amathus, because we see this huge rebuilding of temples and the the you know the acropolis there in the latter half of the first century AD that happened that seems to be driven by a particular Roman governor so we we see things being changed quite dramatically there but still we get this sense that really what came before is maintained and not forgotten and it continues this lack of um, clear honor for the emperors. Would you say it's an example of, or it could be interpreted as an example of passive resistance, or would you just say it's an example of indifference? I wouldn't necessarily call it passive um, resistance because we we I think there is genuine enthusiasm for the worship of the emperor. Okay. Um, okay. We, we certainly we certainly get you know we get individuals who aren't. You know, they, we don't even know if they're rewarded in any way or, or given citizenship. What really happens other than this snapshot? But 
we get all kinds of shrines being set up and you know there I think there is genuine you know enthusiasm but we also have to bear in mind that when it comes to how institutions in Cyprus operate so beyond a lone individual and I'm thinking in particular of the oath of allegiance to Tiberius there's there's something at stake here there's something you know the the worship of the emperor and making you know the the local context making that connection with Aphrodite their chief deity being the divine ancestress of of the emperor there's something to be gained from that and of course there's something to be gained from individuals really throwing themselves into acting as 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 priests of the imperial cult in different contexts and and, and ensuring that festivals are you know um worshiping and honoring him and as i've mentioned with Servius Sulpicius Pancles Boranianus, you know, setting up statues to the emperor. You know, that that kind of activity gets them noticed and it it puts them in many ways in contact with local administrators and of course that's a vehicle for them to then have that contact um outside of the island and utilize that network. So I do think there's genuine enthusiasm. Your other descriptor, what was it? Sorry, you said passive resistance or indifference. No, I don't think they're indifferent at all. As I say, I think there's something to be gained here. So, yeah, absolutely. Are there, um, I wish I had your book in front of me because you you had a list of names there, uh, epigraphic inscriptions, and a lot of them have Greek cognomens. Um, Yes. What is that? How is that interpreted, interpreted? What does that imply, the fact that we have these Roman names and then with like a Greek name right at the end. Are these examples of enfranchised uh, individuals? Yes, absolutely. We have, we have this, it's really, it's it's really wonderful because when we, when we turn to um, our, our key, key cities, key settlements um, under Rome, we get, we get particular hubs where a lot of epigraphic evidence tells us about um, different family dynamics and 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 the, the the perhaps the role and the impact of citizenship in Cyprus in different contexts and just circling back really to to Mitford's work you know I think Mitford does get he he, he gets quite a bit of, of criticism traditionally from from some quarters but actually there's I really you know would like to use the opportunity to say that um, you know, his work is phenomenal. You know, it spans from the 1930s until the 1990s. And he, you know, he he died in the in the late 1970s. And his work was, you know, got key works that are published posthumously. But, you know, his he made accessible scores and scores of inscriptions from Ptolemaic and Roman Cyprus and and he really is that important foundation stone from which you know all of our work on these periods is 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 building from and a lot of what he's what he said does stand today you know it's really important to say that and the his study on the Roman citizenship apart from the, the nuances that I mentioned with regards how to you know regarding how to interpret specifics of that but a lot a lot of it does stand today um so we we can turn to our key hubs such as you know Paphos, Kition, Kurion and Salamis and we can see the the prominent rise of certain family groups that dominate the local administrative and particularly religious scene 
And these individuals have, they have all kinds of, of names, you know, they, they adopt those that gain citizenship, adopt the Roman tria nomina, you know, they have a prinomen, nomen and cognomen. But some also have this, this extra name as well. So the cognomen for those who have the traditional three parts to their names, they maintain that that Greek that Greek name that they have that reflects their 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 family or their family ties, um, and then the other parts are are Roman that come from perhaps the person who granted them citizenship or the system for, you know the emperor from which that that system uh, from which that came from. Sorry. But maintaining that that Greek cognomen is really important to show that people that their their identity was fluid and situational. And there's one particular um, family um, from from Paphos and Palai Paphos. We see them there operating a lot. The Umidi um, of Paphos, as, as I call them. Um, we've got one particular individual from that that family, Gaius Umidius Quadratus, and he's also known as Pantalkianos. So you know he's he's named in that way in his inscription or inscriptions. And you know you've got a Tiberius Claudius Rhodocles, also known as Stasicrates. So they're keeping, you know, in in their inscriptions, they're making these nods to other locally significant names by which they're known by. So again, it's all this, this where do we strike the balance when we're thinking about how much did people lean into celebrating and, and embracing being part of the Roman Empire and how much did they hold on to what came before you know they didn't just forget that you know they had ties um, and connections with with communities and landscapes locally and across the region just because they were assumed into the Roman Empire they it was a very careful balancing act and we see them maintaining it in this in this way it's really really creative and exciting to see yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, it really is. And it's not the first time that we've seen this in Cyprus either. I know that in the archaic, um, pretty sure it's the archaic era, um, we have names in the epigraphic record of um, Phoenician names. And then on the other hand, that same yes. person is written as a Greek name as well. And it's, there's a lot of, I suppose, I don't know, what do we call it? Code switching? Uh, yeah. Way of yeah. Kind of navigating the the political and cultural landscape of Cyprus. It's really fascinating. It really is. It is. And I mean, there's particularly with this, this family that I've mentioned from the Paphian context, you know, they've, they've, they've got individuals who, um, who, who make it clear that they've got ancestors or, or family members um, and, and, and they name them. So we've got someone who prop, crops up a lot um, and we get the name to cross cross that crops up a lot so I, I i sort of think well of course you know that's tuca right and tuca is an you know an incredibly important local figure you know mythologically in cyprus and it's the founder you know, of thalamus right yeah absolutely mm-hmm. so there's there's you know i i don't think that the use and choice of these names this you know the in these these symbols and signs there it's not by accident yeah <laughs> I, I certainly don't think so I do have one more question for you, um, and this one I think you've you've actually published um, a separate paper on this that I came across. Can you just tell us one final thing? Can you speak to Lucius Septimius Nestor of Loranda and mm-hmm. his benefactor, Sergia Aurelia Regina, 
at the sanctuary of Aphrodite Paphia, because there was an inscription that was found commemorating him as a poet, and yeah. he was even granted citizenship. What drew you to that find, and what's so significant about it? Oh, this is such a delightful interaction, I would say. And it's a brilliant snapshot of a high-profile visitor coming to the island and perhaps staying there for a while. And the the figure that you mentioned, Sergia um, Aurelia Regina, is a she's a sort of a self-styled consularis femina in Cyprus. So she is um, somebody of you know high rank in the local scene or on the local scene. And we've got two inscriptions from the sanctuary of Aphrodite Paphia at Palai Paphos that name or, 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 or indicate that these that this dynamic between the two of them. So they're statue bases. So we should imagine somehow that there was, you know, an accompanying statue that 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 sort of went hand in hand with the inscriptions. We don't have those, unfortunately. What is really fun about this interaction? Um, so. Regina is the patroness and Nesta of Loranda is this infamous um, poet and we see him crop up in lots of different places in the Roman Empire. So this interaction in Cyprus really contributes to the wider cultural scene at this, at this time. And there's a particular thing about these inscriptions that I just want to mention because it is it's great fun to see this playing out um, in stone. Um, so as I've mentioned, there's a statue or statue base that shows that Regina sets up a monument commemorating Nesta of Loranda. And she describes herself as, as I've mentioned, a consularis femina. So she is of mighty stock. So that's the phrase. Now, one might expect to see the word, the Greek word, hypatike, used um, as the equivalent to consularis femina. But instead, we see the phrase hypate hypaton, and that's the name of a musical note from the greater perfect system. So this is commonly this would have been commonly known in antiquity. And what is significant about this, and I hope I get this right, saying it out loud, um, is that the note that she uses to describe her rank and her identity. It would have been played using a string on the highest position of an instrument, but it would have in fact made the lowest sounding, you know, timber or, or, or sound. So she's signalling her rank as being high, but her musical proficiency as being low and of hmm. course inferior to the great poet that she is the patroness of. Anyone reading this would have got that pun. Um and what is really nice about this, this, these two inscriptions is that the other inscription is not 100% clear, but I would certainly say it was, there's lots of markers there to indicate that it was set up by Nesta to, to her. And it makes me think about the display of these inscriptions in a context like the sanctuary of Aphrodite at Palopaphos. I mean, anyone who's visited there, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, you just get a sense of the foundations today. Um, it's, you know, it's a site that's been rebuilt on um, and, and utilized over, over many centuries. And, you know, lots of material from the site have, of course, has of course been displaced as well. So 
you know, I I sort of hedge my bets a little bit with the article that you mentioned. And I, I like to think that really the inscriptions, they would have been set up next to one another or at least in close proximity because the stones speak to one another, you know, and it's you'd like to think that that's how they could have been viewed in the ancient world in that setting. As I say, there's no firm evidence for this. You know, we this is not like other contexts where we have a really clear example of exactly where inscriptions were set up in proximity to one another. But I'd like to think that that relationship and the joke and the pun was clear for passers-by or people certainly interacting in that context to, to see. Urson, thank you so much. Um, honestly, this was this was great. This was really insightful, and even even just talking with you today, I've, I feel like I already know so much more than I thought I did going into this. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of um, clarity, and and again, I don't know how else I can say it. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much, Andreas. This is such a wonderful series and I, I feel really honoured and quite humbled that you've you've asked me to be part of this. And I really hope I've done justice to the Roman period. There's so much to say about this, um, this, this, this stretch of history um, in, the, in the island's profile. So I, I really hope this encourages people to, to go off, find out more, go into their museums, find out online what other resources there are, engage with the, the, the key texts that we talk about. Of course, there's so much more um, as well that uh, that listeners can engage with when it comes to, to you know, Cyprus in the, in the ancient imagination during this period as well. So, yeah, I really hope it, it, it is, um, it's encouraging and inspiring for people to, to, to hear about this. There's another thing that... Um... I also found in our conversation that really kind of lends itself to another theme that I found that's kind of running through this, this, these, these episodes. And that is mm-hmm. dispelling a lot of common mis, uh, misconceptions about Cyprus. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, this is just like another tick, you know, um, yeah. talking about uh, Roman Cyprus. Fantastic. Well, keep up the amazing work. <laughs> Thank you, Erson. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great evening. Yes. And you. Thank okay. you so much again. Bye-bye. Okay,